but good morning again. Um, welcome to Potomac Hills. My name is Frank Wong. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're new, please do stick around after the service uh, outside. I know it's cold, uh, but I'd love the chance to get to meet you and greet you properly. If you're not new, it's good to see all of you again, uh, to share with you uh, this time of worshiping our Lord. It's a good day to be in the Lord's house, of course. So please turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 to 10. And while you're turning there with me, uh, remember that this is week three of our four-week series on confidence. Uh, We started the year off with confidence in God, and then last week we talked about confidence in God's Word. And this week we're talking about confidence in Christ. And then we'll be finishing up next week with the confidence uh, with confidence in the gospel before we start our series in Joshua at the beginning of February. So, let us turn our attention to the word of God. I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. If though I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Let us pray. Father, as we come to your word this morning, We come thinking we are strong, thinking that uh, so much of this world depends upon us. But Lord, would you teach us, uh, as you taught Paul, that your power is made perfect in weakness and that you are the object of our very hearts, that you are our strength in in our time of need. And so, Lord, as we look upon your word, Lord, we pray that your word would remind us that we should have confidence in you, in in particular, your son. So help us this morning to see you and change us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, have you ever noticed that we often play a game of one-upmanship in life? I see it as a parent. Uh, when I hear somebody complaining about how little sleep they've had uh, the night before. I feel this almost irresistible urge to say something along the lines of, yeah, I hear you. 
we've been trying to get sleep for like the last four years. But why? Why, do, why must I make it a competition, right? And this isn't, you know, confined to uh, exhausted parents comparing uh, or competing over who is more exhausted. Uh, in college, and I imagine that it was the same at Princeton as it is at Patrick Henry, that we too engage in a game of one-upsmanship there too, right? And what is, it, what is it there? It's not just, well, I didn't get any sleep because up, I was up working all night, but it was how much work that we have to do, what's on our plates, right? So it's something like, oh man, this is going to be a brutal week. I've got a test and a 10-page paper due and a thousand pages of reading. I don't know how I'm going to do it. Which inevitably brings the response, oh yeah? I got two tests, a 15-page paper, a Bible study to lead, a soccer game to win, and on top of singing with my acapella group and the usual load of reading, and I didn't get any sleep last week because it was the same last week. And you're just like, what's the point? What are we doing? Why are we humble bragging as it were? It's a sort of perverse kind of pride in our own strength and enduring more than the other person. And what are we doing? We're boasting in what we're overcoming. We're boasting in our own strength. And that kind of one-upmanship is the context of our passage this morning. We come to this passage that many of you know because of the famous uh, part about the thorn in the flesh in, in Paul's life. But within the context of our passage this morning, Paul has spent the preceding two chapters, chapters 10 and 11, defending his ministry because there are so-called super apostles at, uh, at Corinth criticizing and, and uh, comparing themselves to him and trying to compete with him. And super apostles, if you were wondering, is not my term, but uh, Paul's term. And so Paul is sort of caught up in a game of one-upsmanship. But, at, but this time, it isn't about sort of tiredness or how much we have on our plates. But this time, what's at stake is the church. Because the church is being influenced away from the gospel that Paul has preached to a different gospel that these super apostles are preaching, which is really no, no gospel at all. And so Paul sets out to defend himself. Well, sort of. But by the time we get to chapter 12 in our passage today, Paul has already addressed a lot of the things and had already boasted it in his weaknesses and his hardships as we sort of see at the end of our passage this morning. But he has one more thing to address when we get to chapter 12. It was the boast of these so-called super apostles that they had received divine knowledge through visions and revelations. And it's quite a boast uh, to make since it would make them seem special or uniquely equipped to minister in a way that somehow Paul was not equipped. And so Paul felt like he had to respond, which is where we pick up in verses 1 to 4. Read with me again, verses 1 to 4. I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. It will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in, he in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. So right there in verses 2 to 4, Paul laid out that he too had a vision. He's this man who has been caught up into the third heaven. Okay, and it's sort of weird because he's referring to himself in the third person. But this is Paul that, that he's referring to. And it means that Paul 
was caught up to the third heaven and, and of paradise. Well, what does that mean? Because we don't really talk about third heaven or paradise all that much unless it's in the context of Revelation and sort of, or Jesus on the cross telling uh, the criminal next to him that he's going to be in paradise with him that day. We don't really talk about these sorts of things. So what does he mean? And what Paul actually means is that he was brought into the very presence of God, the very throne room of God, like Moses was. Right? When he was put in the cleft of the rock, that he might behold God's glory as God passes by him. And so Paul is in the very presence of God. And he's so overcome by the glory of God that he doesn't even know if he's got a body or not. And it would, it would seem to be he, he can't be bothered to pay attention to something so basic and foundational because it is so amazing. He's so concentrated on what he's viewing that he's not like taking time to look down and see if he's got hands or feet or, or whatever. All he knows is that he was there with God, really there with him, in the presence of the risen, ascended, and glorious Christ. And there he heard things too great and too sacred to describe. Well, so much for his opponent's boast, Right? Paul didn't just level the playing field. In verse 7, he describes the surpassing greatness of the revelations as so great that a thorn was given to him to keep him from becoming conceited. And we also know from the timing of it, sort of when we know the, the letter was written and the sort of the fact that this was 14 years ago for Paul, we know that these visions weren't the view of Christ that he saw on the road to Damascus, which brought him to conversion. This isn't this great and glorious encounter with the risen Lord to bring him out of the darkness and in, in, into the light. No, these visions seem to have come some seven years after Paul's conversion. And so Paul wasn't just sort of your run-of-the-mill apostle who had seen the risen Christ, which would have been more than sufficient to silence his critics because he's an apostle, right? No, Paul had what the super apostles uh, claim, he was what the super apostles claimed to be themselves. He had received an additional view of God's glory that surpassed expression. And so the, ex, the implications are clear. Paul totally outclasses his opponents. And yet, Paul quickly dismisses his credentials in the next verse. And he actually undermined the whole comparison itself Way back in verse 1, did you catch what Paul said and what he thought of this game of one-upsmanship? Back in verse 1, he said, there's nothing to get, be gained by it. And so he's like, ah, I guess I have to do this, but there's really no point. And then in verse 5, he sort of completely changes tactics. Instead of blowing his critics out of the water with his own amazing credentials, he instead appeals to his weakness, to his thorn. But why? Why? He knew that he could boast. That's verse 6. He knew that it would, in fact, be true, too, that he wouldn't be lying or falsely boasting in his credentials. But he refrained because he didn't want to be considered a hero of the faith or a superhuman apostle or a so-called super apostle, right? No, he didn't want people to think too much of him, but the danger of putting him on a pedestal, right, to make him the next celebrity pastor with all the fame that goes with it isn't limited to 
people looking at Paul. Paul himself was in danger of getting too big of a head. So great were his credentials, which really brings us to this thorn. Paul said in verse 7 that the thorn was given to him to keep him from becoming conceited and that it was a messenger of Satan to harass him. And there's been a lot of ink spilled over what this thorn was, and no one really knows exactly what it was. But what we do know is that it was a physical affliction, that he felt it in his very flesh, and that it had a spiritual origin. An agent of Satan was allowed to physically torment Paul. And again, the question is why? Because this thorn in the flesh highlights Paul's weaknesses his frailty, his powerlessness to do anything about it. And it's important to note that Paul wanted no no part of this thorn, right? He prayed fervently and on multiple occasions, pleading three times with the Lord to deliver him from this evidently tormenting physical ailment. But the Lord refused to take it away. And so Paul, revealing this thorn in the flesh here in this context, which he hasn't sort of revealed before, is somewhat curious because he shouldn't. He's trying to defend his ministry and he's giving his opponents more ammo. So what is he doing? He's operating, he's got the credentials and he knows, and and he's operating from a position of unassailable strength, right? There's nothing that they can say against him. And yet he insists upon appealing not to his amazing resume, but to this thorn, to his brokenness, to his weakness, and his need of deliverance. So we've got two options, right? We've got the vision and the thorn. And he has a choice of which one he wants to choose to sort of use as his argument. And he chooses his thorn. And it's really mystifying. And so that question, why he chooses a thorn or the, of, over and against the vision, is at the very heart of our passage this morning. Why does Paul have confidence in his weaknesses and not in his strength, which he should have confidence in? Normally, we would appeal to our strengths, right? To defend and commend ourselves. Uh, In interviews for jobs, we are told to highlight our strengths and to hide our weaknesses. We want to strengthen our resumes with more and greater accomplishments. But Paul almost seems allergic to it. He doesn't want to do it. So why doesn't he want to do what, what he, we expect him to do? Why doesn't he have confidence in the surpassing greatness of his vision? And I think that he sees these options not as options of strength or weakness, but as focusing either upon himself or upon Christ. And ultimately, using his vision as an argument for the primacy and legitimacy of his ministry makes things really about himself. It would have been about the fact that he had a vision, right? The points would have been his superiority because of the greatness of this vision that had been given to him. But that would miss the point of the vision. And it's, if you look at that line as he describes the greatness of his vision, I think in, in verse 4, he says two things. He says that no man may, may speak and that are too great for man to utter. And what, what, what that means is they're both beyond expression, but also that they're private, 
that Paul himself is forbidden to speak of it, that he's forbidden to relate it to others for the sake of it's private. It's meant to encourage him. But why isn't he supposed to talk about it? The point was that wasn't that Paul should think of himself as special because he was afforded this vision. But rather, the point was whom he saw in that vision. The point wasn't that he had a vision, but that he had a great vision of Jesus. And so the point isn't to sort of spread around this fact that he had this great vision of Jesus, because that would point to him. Look at me. I had a great vision. I'm so special. You should, be really, you should really think highly of me. No, the point is, let me see. Let, Jesus wants to say, I want to show you more of me. That's what he's trying to say. So let me say that again. The confidence the vision brought wasn't due to having the vision, but because of whom he saw in that vision. And who did he see? He saw Jesus. He got a glimpse of the throne room of God to see the risen, ascended, and glorified Jesus. For those of you that were here uh, for Sunday school, we just talked about the picture of Jesus that we get, that his feet are like burnished bronze, like his eyes are full of fire, and his face shines like the sun, right? It's a picture of inexpressible glory and amazement. But it's not just that he sees Jesus, but he also sees what Jesus is doing. And what is Jesus doing right now? Well, we read it in Romans 8 this morning. Romans 8.34 from our call to worship. It tells us that Jesus is at the right hand of God. And he's interceding for us right now. And I think this is what motivated Paul to make little of the fact that he had a vision. His confidence was in Christ, not in the fact that he had been granted a view of God. He trusted not in the fact that he had an experience, but in the one whom he experienced. And so I think it's worthwhile right now to sort of pause, to sit right here, to to think about having confidence in Christ rather than our resume for just a little bit. We're supposed to be talking about confidence in Christ after all, right? So you see... Paul understands that putting confidence in Christ is the only thing that will work. Putting your confidence in anything else simply doesn't work. Well, let me explain. Most of the things that we put our confidence in either deal in the past or in the future, but rarely, if ever, in the present. At least nothing that I can think of deals in the present. Now, what do I mean by that? So, for instance, when dealing with that which we can't overcome, we generally appeal to a greater power, like uh, your boss or, or your dad if you're a kid on the playground being bullied by uh, a kid that's bigger and badder than you, right? But usually that power or skill or whatever only promises to right the wrong. In the future, you have to wait for it to come. If it could address the present, if it could help you in the present, you wouldn't be having the issue in the first place. And so most of our answers push to things in the future, and we have to wait in the present for that future to come. And so it's not all that helpful in the here and now, right? So what happens on that playground, right? When you've got that bully who's come up to you and he's gonna he's gonna beat you up and you say something like, "Well, my dad's gonna sort you out. He's gonna beat you up when my, when my dad gets here." 
Well, what's his response going to be? Well, your dad ain't here. So let me put your face in the ground. And so that future promise gives some measure of comfort to us, right? I know that justice will be served in the long haul, but it doesn't help me right now when I'm getting beat up. Maybe it's the promise of your child um, that your child will sleep better when they're in middle school. Well, that's comforting to know that my life won't be filled with wake-ups at 3 o'clock in the morning. But that middle school is a long way away from my four-year-old, right? And that's not going to really help me at 3 a.m. like it was last night. It just doesn't help. So it's all future. But then what about our accomplishments? We often look to our accomplishments to help us, right? We look to our accomplishments for, uh, for confidence. But they're even less help than sort of the things that point to the future. Why? Because they're already done. They're already done, and they're in the past. And so they don't help us in the future. So let's say you're a high school state football champion, star quarterback. Great. Congratulations. You were awesome. Still not going to help you at 3 a.m. in the morning with your kid, right? It's not going to count for anything. It's not going to help you. Most of the things that we have confidence in point to the future or the past, but they don't really help us with our sufferings in the present. And Paul knew that. Paul knew that he, that he shouldn't have confidence in the fact that he had a great vision of God. How could the memory of that great time help him in the moment when he's suffering through shipwreck or persecution or rejection or whatever? It's over and done. It's a long way in the past. It's not going to help him. Just the fact that he saw God. Great. That was awesome. Right? But even our experiences don't help us in the present. It's true that the powerful promise of the Lord will come to set all things right in the future. And yes, we can trust in the fact that the Lord has saved us. Yes, those are all things that are true, but those always point to the things that are in the past or in the future. So what help do we have in the present, in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our hurt? And I think that the vision uh, that Paul has of Jesus reminds him of the present value of the gospel. Because the present value of the gospel is Jesus himself. You see, when we're united with Christ, what does that mean? It means that Jesus is presently with us. He is always with us. He is our comfort and our strength. The book of Hebrews tells us that we have, a, we have such a high priest as Jesus, as we just read, right, from our, our prayer time. Who is, not, who is not unable to sympathize with our struggles. And so that means he understands everything that we're going through, far more than we give him credit for. He is able to understand what we go through and that he was tempted in every way that we were, yet, we were, yet was still without sin. And so Jesus knows what it's like to be human, to wake up in the middle of the night, Because remember, he had brothers and sisters, and he was the firstborn, right? And so he would have woken up to crying kids in the middle of the night. Jesus knows what it is to suffer in this life, and we know that. Why? Because we read it every time we read Isaiah 53. It it reminds us that he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Jesus is our ever-present help in time of need, and so we are not alone in our hardships, our sufferings, our weaknesses. 
Jesus is right there with us. It's part of the, it's one of the great blessings that we have in our union with him. But he's not just a comforting shoulder to cry on, but an active participant in our perseverance. It could be said that he preserves us instead of we persevering, right? Again, Romans 8.34 tells us that Jesus is presently at the right hand of God the Father interceding for us. And so Jesus knows what's going on, and he's right there with you. And Jesus isn't just sort of there comforting you, trying to encourage you, but he's actively working to help you through it. He's working to help you in the midst of suffering. And that's why Paul was given the surpassing vision of Jesus in glory, to remind him that through all the hardships that he he would face, and there are a lot of them, that Christ was with him and for him and in him and working at every moment. Go look at First Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 to 33, which is just before our passage. It's a list of all that Paul had endured up to that point. And the list is, quite frankly, horrifying. Shipwrecks, disease, stonings, beatings, right? For, the, for my youth group, right, we like to talk about this uh, Paul. He got stoned at one place. And, like, he got stoned so badly that the people that were stoning him thought he was dead. And what did Paul do? He got up from that stoning and then walked 50 miles, right? Can you imagine getting stoned so badly that the people that wanted to kill you thought that they had done so and then you had to get up and the Lord made you walk 50 miles? That's suffering, right? And in the midst of that suffering, he knows that Christ is right there with him, working for him and interceding with him, right? Paul has confidence in Christ, not because, not only because Christ has power, but because Christ is everything. The present value of the gospel doesn't stop with power, doesn't stop with comfort, doesn't stop with helping us in the midst of our hardship, because it goes further and deeper and richer than that. The gospel enables us to rejoice in our sufferings, in our hardship, and our weaknesses. To rejoice in the fact that we are actually suffering. To rejoice in the suffering itself. Why? James 1 verse 2 tells us, Count it all joy, my brothers, when, we, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the, sted, the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So suffering, hardship, and weakness all take us to school. They teach us about the life that Jesus lived. As we suffer, what do we tend to do? We tend to defend ourselves, as Paul was expected to defend his own life and his own ministry. But as we suffer, what do we do? We rail against the injustice, the sin, the wrongness that we're, doing, that we're enduring. And that we think that being right will be enough. That justice comes with being right. But it's not enough. As many of you online can see in your debates on Facebook, being right is not enough. Because the truth is often not enough. If it were, we would have never sinned. We would have never exchanged the truth for the lie in the garden. 
being right doesn't fix broken relationships. It doesn't fix everything. Being right often doesn't mean that we overcome and win, but it means that we are often left out in the cold, alone and isolated. Why? Because the world has rejected the truth. And so it is in the midst of the wrongness, the injustice, and the unfairness that we learn what it means, what it really, really means to extend grace, to extend sacrificial grace, not unlike the way that the Lord extends sacrificial grace to me, to us. As we give grace to those who hurt us, who are different from us, who seem callous or ruled by fear or reckless, as we just talked about in our COVID restrictions right at the end of that, as we give grace to those who make our blood boil and our hearts toward thoughts of anger and contempt, we begin to understand what it must have been like to save me. I can think of all the ways in which, or think of at least some of the ways in which I've sinned against the Lord. And I can intellectually affirm that God's grace to me is immense because I'm a great, great, great big sinner. But living graciously gives me a whole new appreciation for God's grace towards me. Now, how many of you guys have ever watched downhill skiing at the Olympics on TV? Anyone? Okay. Now, of those people, how many of you guys have gone skiing yourself? Okay. Now, after you went, hopefully you remember what it was like to go skiing the very first time, right? I was in high school when I went skiing for the very first time, and I'd seen skiers go downhill. I'm like, oh, it can't be that hard, right? And I learned firsthand how hard it is, right? And it gave me a new appreciation for what these amazing athletes could do. Why? Because there I was on the same slope, a much easier slope, right? And what was I doing? I was spitting up snow, right? I was eating snow, trying to brush it out of my face that is now bloody because I face planted, right? And so it is with grace, right? We can intellectually see, oh, yeah, God gave me a lot of grace on the cross. I understand that. But when we have to extend grace, when it's hard for us, when it's costly for us, when we have to not only shoulder all the, the things that somebody has done wrong against us, but then turn around and to give them goodness and grace and kindness and gentleness at the same time, that's hard. And it gives us a new appreciation of what, of what Christ did for me. Romans 8 put it, puts it this way. We are being conformed to his image. When we extend grace, when we, ex, ex, when we endure suffering and extend grace in the midst of it, we are becoming like Christ. And so that is why Paul doesn't put any stock in his vision and trumpets his weaknesses. Why? Because he only wants Christ. He only wants to magnify the greatness of Christ in his life because it's the only thing that works in the here and now in the present. And it's the only thing that helps him and also gives him what he truly wants, which is Jesus, that he would become more like Jesus. And so Jesus is not only our savior and our help and our friend, but he is our treasure. He is the one that we want to become. He, he is the one that we want to know better. And I will go to Paul will go to any length 
that he might know Jesus just a little bit more. And so now that we know why we ought to have confidence in Christ, why Paul has confidence in Christ, that it's the only thing that helps us in the present and that we get what we really want, which is more of Jesus, how does this change us? How, do we, how does this change the way that we approach life? Paul points the way in the second half of verse 9 and verse 10. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Do you see the joy in the face of suffering and weakness? Do you see how Paul is so aware of the value of suffering with Jesus, because of Jesus, for Jesus? Philippians 3, 8 to 11 makes this clear. Paul says there, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. It's, it's a lot wor- worse than rubbish, but... It rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith. And here is the most important part for, our, for us this morning. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, beco- becoming like him in death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So Paul wants to share in Christ's sufferings because he he knows that to share in Christ's suffering is to participate in the body and blood of Christ. That he would be united with Christ, that he would be one with him, that he would be conformed to Christ's image. But it also means that he then also gets to participate in his glorification too. So glory for the Christian comes through suffering the same way it did for Christ. Paul sees his hardships as opportunities to become more like Christ, to allow Christ's power in his life to be made manifest, to share in Christ's sufferings that he may also share in his resurrection. And that's really hard for us. We're all all on board with knowing Christ and the power of his resurrection like Philippians tells us, right? But when we hear that to get Christ in his resurrection means to suffer, we put the brakes on. Whoa, I thought that God loved me and wants what's best for me. How is suffering and my hurting what's best for me? How is that best? I really don't like it. It seems really uncomfortable. But do you see that that's simply the idolatry of comfort speaking? What's best for us is to know Christ better. That's what's best for us. And it's best for us because when we suffer, we turn to Christ for our everything, and that we get a better picture of who he is. In our suffering, we become more like Christ, and that requires us to have confidence in Christ. We cannot suffer well without Christ. And what is really radical is, the part of, is that part of that suffering is the giving of grace again. 
right? It really tests us because it feels totally unfair and feels unjust because that's what grace is by definition. It's unmerited favor, favor instead of wrath. And so Christ didn't just soak up and suffer and not give anything. He didn't just take and take and take like a doormat. No, Christ took it all. And then he gave us every spiritual blessing. He gave us eternal life. He gave us an inheritance that is imperishable and and status as sons and daughters of Christ. Can you see the riches that we receive at his expense? Jesus took suffering and displayed weakness that he might win for us grace and extend that grace to us. And so that's what we're called to. And we're not really good at it. Right? Look at the divisions in the church over COVID, over politics, over race, just in the last year. There's not a lot of grace in those divisions. And that's particularly true online, where it's easy to dismiss impersonal people, impersonal posters on Facebook, right? Or Instagram or Twitter or whatever. It's easy to look at the other side and say, they're just being reckless or callous or fearful or racist or Democrat, or Republican, or abortionist, or whatever. When I look to the other side, I see them. I don't want grace for them. What do I want? I want to murder them in my hearts. I want to hold them in contempt. I want to see them horrified at the folly of their own foolishness. I want them to acknowledge that I am right. That's what I want. I want them to see that they're wrong. But to let them off? To extend tolerance to that which seems wrong? Just doesn't feel right. They're not right. How can this be allowed? It's not right. It's not just. But that's not grace. What's the bar for grace? Love, kindness, charity, faithfulness, patience. And all of that comes in the face of wrongness. In the face of evil. Yeah, I'm not coming close to that. And so from there, what do I put my confidence in? If I look at my life in the here and now, as I live my life, I don't put my confidence in Christ. I put my confidence in myself, in my own wisdom, my own perspective, my own understanding, and it leads me where? To pride and to grumpiness. Which will, in time, if I leave it there, turn to hatred and division. I'm definitely not putting my confidence in Christ, but being right, feeling superior, and belittling those on the other side doesn't solve any of my issues any more than it than before when I talked about this. It will simply leave me angry, isolated, and self-righteous. But giving grace frees us from all of that. Grace trusts in the Lord to give me far more abundantly than I need so that I can freely give that abundance to others. It rests in the security of the Lord that, so that I don't need other people to agree with me, 
to recognize that I'm right. Why? Because I'm secure in the Lord. Do you see the insecurity that, that I am displaying when I need everybody to be right with me, uh, to, to agree with me? That I have to have everybody agree and see that I'm right. That makes me a wildly insecure person. But in Christ, I am secure beyond comparison. Why? Because the Lord has declared here and now that I am his. And he is mine. And so in Christ's faithfulness and security, I am free to give grace to those who disagree. Giving grace requires us to put our confidence in the Lord because we simply don't have it in us to endure suffering, to give grace like our Savior does. And so let us boast together all the more in our weaknesses that we might magnify the grace that has been given to us in Christ Jesus. For his grace is sufficient for our suffering. For his power is made perfect in my weakness. And so all the more I will boast in my weakness that I might live in Christ and attain the resurrection from the dead. Think about that. We need to pray. Father God, I confess that I am not like Paul that I look at my critics, that I look at those that disagree with me, and my inclination is to try to blow them out of the water. That I would turn my wrath upon them, that they might see the wrongness of them, that I might humiliate them. That I don't see them as precious in your sight. Lord, my confidence is in myself in my own wisdom, in my own understanding. And Lord, I pray that you would change me. Would you make me like Paul? Would you make me like your son, Jesus, who did not count equality with you as something to be grasped, but humbled himself, trusting in you for vindication? Lord, I pray that we would boast, that I would boast in my weakness, that I might display your grace and your mercy more. Lord, help me in that, for Lord... Grace is not what I want to give. And that I'm a hypocrite because you have given me grace immeasurable. Lord, give us a vision of Christ. Give us a picture of who he is and what he has done. Give us a picture of the amazing grace that he has given to us that it might change us into gracious people as well. Oh, Lord, would you make me love my enemy as you loved me when I was your enemy. Change my, my heart, Lord, I pray. And all the hearts in this room, we pray. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.